Hey y'all, welcome to BA in Science. I'm Maggie, that's Brenna. Hi. And we can't wait to tell you all about a badass human who also happened to do science. I'm kind of looking forward to our episode today because it doesn't often happen that our featured BA is a super well-known name and not just like the person, but like the name is a name that you probably like everybody literally knows this person's name without really knowing much about the person because like Mm -hmm. everybody knows Leonardo da Vinci's name but you also know about Leonardo da Vinci yeah right but like some people do well sure but I'm I mean people are going to know this guy's name but they're not Mm going to really know a lot about him I think do you think that's true am I right about that sure so yeah so that's gonna be fun today I think Let's deal with some weekly business before we get started. You might be wondering how to make sure that other people find us. The best way to do that is to rate, review, follow, like, or whatever our podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free, takes no time at all, and helps other people know they want to be here listening. Do you have something we need to know? Maybe a suggestion for an episode or an answer to a question or a homework assignment we gave? You can email us at science at gmail.com. You can also DM us on Facebook or Instagram. We're at science, both of those places. Finally, if you can't get enough of us, and honestly, who can, you can become a podcast supporter on Patreon. Simply go to patreon.com, search for BA and Science, and subscribe. For just $5 a month, the low, low, low price, $5 a month. You can get early access to episodes plus our entire catalog of bonus content, including special episodes during the season and our summer series. And guys, we just released a mini episode like last week and it was really awesome. So you're definitely missing out if you're not over there. Um, Plus you can even like get a week trial for free. So try it out. Yeah. Do we have any addendums from last episode before we start on our BA? I have one. I have one. I actually today got a package and I don't know where it came from. And I'm looking at it going, I don't recall ordering something that looks like this shape. So I open it up and it's a, uh, what do you, like a wooden, not a plaque, a sign, I guess. It's a pub sign. Yeah. And it says Spuddle Manor. And I love it. And I instantly was like, did mom do this? Because, you know, mom does those kinds of things. Mom definitely does those kind of things. Yeah. So I hit her up. I'm like, mom, was this you? She goes, no, it's not me. So turns out Maggie sent me this lovely sign that says Spuddle Manor. And I'm going to hang it over the doorway leading from my outside. Well, it's a screened in porch into my house. Yeah. So that I can like sit and see that. I'll have to explain to my husband why we have a sign that says Spuddle Manor above my door. Yes. Um, but I don't really care. He'll be, he won't care. He won't, he'll he won't care. There. Actually, I probably, if I trusted myself to hang it by my, like on my own, but guys, mm-hmm. it requires me to like put it into the siding of my house. Yeah, so, I so that's I should no. do this by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I could probably just do it and he would never even notice that it was there, to be quite honest. That's probably true. But, you know. He'll see it because I'll make him do it for me. So, you know, here we are. Yeah. yeah, So now I will be able to have like an official sign for Spuddle Manor over here. So once you get it hung up, you need to post a pic so people can see it. Yeah, for sure. I got it on Etsy and it was fun. And I knew that you, I didn't know that it was going to arrive while you were 
like you weren't going to be able to get it for a couple of days because you had been gone and then you came home and it was there. So I didn't know it was yeah. going to happen with that, but yeah, glad it worked out. It was a fun surprise. Yeah. So speaking of house naming, yeah. um, listener Leslie and her daughters mm-hmm. um, came up with a name for their home. Oh, perfect. Yes. So the name that they picked for their house is Chateau Grasson which means in English, the creaky house. And if I said that wrong, our one French listener that we haven't managed to alienate or make angry at this point, you can correct me. Um, But it means creaky house because they have an older house that makes lots of noises, which I thought was adorable. So good job with that name. I'm still, I don't know what I'm going to call my house yet. I, you know, Casa Chaos is kind of how it's felt the last couple of weeks. (laughs) So, but that doesn't somehow that doesn't have the same ring to it as Spuddle Manor. So, um, so yeah, I'll be pondering that still. Okay. Yeah. So, but that was the only addendum. Oh, um, I do want to say that um, if you haven't listened to our brawl episodes, you need to go listen to them uh, because we got two angry face emojis from mom about all of the things the men were doing in that episode. Yeah, it's a lot of ridiculousness. It was very ridiculous. So, yeah, we got some actual mad face, like, there were emotions, there were feelings about. Yeah, yeah so definitely go listen to those because they're fun. Uh, but that is all that I've got for the week. Do you have anything else? Nope. All right, then let's take a break and we will get started on our BA. I am on the bio tonight and it's a pretty fun one, although it's not not overly outrageous, but uh, RBA did some groundbreaking things and was, or did was, he? Had, or Well, I think he did. I don't know. I guess we had to leave that one up to the courts, but I, I suspect you'll talk more about that. Either way, I do know that he was born and he lived and he died, and that's what I can tell you more about. But first, what's our quote and who are we discussing today? A compound of sulfur and India rubber in proper proportions and in certain conditions being subjected to a certain degree of heat undergoes a change which renders it perfectly available for for all the uses. All the uses, all the apparently. Things. All the things. Um, so that is a quote from RBA Charles Goodyear. Which, Charles guys, like if you Goodyear. listen to last episode... And you listen to the teaser. If you didn't know it was Charles Goodyear today, like I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I, I, I would be stunned. I mean, you had to have. Known. Like I literally said, Goodyear in the pun. It would be a good year. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So it shouldn't be a surprise, but surprise. Well, yeah. I mean, Goodyear tires are probably probably the most famous of all tires. I mean, like maybe Michelin is like right up there, but everybody knows the name Goodyear goes with tires, uh, which well, is funny. A blimp. Well, yeah, sure. But, you know, Charles, who I will be calling Chuck, Chuck didn't even found the Goodyear Tire Company, uh, which we'll talk about later. But his name literally means tires to this day. Let's kind of find out more about him and find out why. Charles F. Goodyear was born to parents Amasa and Cynthia Goodyear on December 29, 1800 in New Haven, Connecticut. Amasa was an interesting guy. And he's going to be a character in our story for most of our story. So the Goodyears had been in what would become America since the 1630s or so. Stephen Goodyear 
one of the first to be here, was a major landowner and a judge by 1641, and he was elected deputy governor in 1642. Mm. In that role, Goodyear put out a whole bunch of political fires between English settlers and the Dutch and Swedes who were also settling in that part of the colonies, because like they were in like the New York area, right? Right. Um, as a judge, he elected not to have a woman hanged for witchcraft, since the evidence was mostly that she looked mean sometimes and somebody <laughs> got bad chicken for dinner once. Hey, good for him. Yeah. So he was just like, oh, you know what? I'm not I'm not doing that, which I, I really respect. Uh, yeah. So and if, if his government and judgely duties weren't enough, he was commercially minded as well. He did a lot of trading with Barbados and the West Indies. He insisted a college should be founded in New Haven, although Yale wouldn't be founded until after his death. He was like all for it. Mm -hmm. In the 240 or so years from the time of this guy's death to Chuck's birth, though, not a single other notable Goodyear makes waves in New Haven. Cool. Kind of a dry spell. Now, as I said, Amasa was interesting, but not overly notable. He was a fairly successful merchant, but he also liked to tinker. He invented stuff like... He invented this closed lamp for burning oil and the spring steel hay fork, uh, which we don't make anymore, but was super awesome at the time. Most hay forks were wrought iron and they were like really heavy. So Amasa's was much lighter and better and blah, blah, blah. But even as Charles was born, Amasa was kind of tired of merchanting. So in 1805, he moved the family to Naugatuck because he was opening a button factory and there was a good site with plenty of water there. Because in those days before all of this was like electrically run you had to have water moving a wheel to power you know so you had to build your factory by water Naugatuck was a great place for that to make buttons to make buttons correct like and and like and like clothing buttons yeah Amasa's factory was the first in America to manufacture pearl buttons and it was also the factory with the government contract to make the buttons for the American soldiers uniforms during the war of 1812 Ooh, that's kind of fancy. That's kind of fancy, okay? So Chuck often helped his dad with whatever the family business was at the time. Besides a desire to make stuff and invent stuff, Amasa had passed his appalling lack of business sense on to Chuck. Put that in your satchel, because that's going to come back a lot later. Uh, But first, let's talk about what Chuck was like as a kid. Now, most boys his age, living where and when he did, would have hunted and fished and skated and swam and like all those kind of things. But Chuck was kind of a sickly kid. He had what they called then dyspepsia, which was kind of just a catch-all term for digestive problems. He preferred to read. He was very klutzy. The people he knew noted his adult-like seriousness, even from before he was a teenager. He had no inclination to be involved in anything mechanical, which is weird because he did like to spend time in his dad's mill. Like, The machinery didn't interest him, but the creative process did. Mm -hmm. So also put that in your satchel. When Chuck was 16, the family was in a time of prosperity, and Amasa hired William DeForest to be Chuck's tutor. Now, William would eventually marry Chuck's sister, and he would be a big supporter of Chuck's later ventures. Like, William knew Chuck really well. He was one that noticed the extreme seriousness that Chuck exhibited, And William would also talk about how Chuck was very pious and religious to the point where his parents were concerned he would become a minister. Now, you might say, why would you be concerned? That's a perfectly good job. Well, Amasa wasn't thrilled with that idea because he wanted his son to take over the family business. Mm. Can't do that if you're a minister. 
True. So he sent Chuck away to Philadelphia for four or so years, which seemed to cure him of the idea of joining the church. When Chuck got back, he met a girl named Clarissa Beecher. She was a pretty girl with dark hair, and her dad had money. Now, Chuck was kind of skinny because, remember, digestive problems, but he had dark hair and dark eyes, and he was industrious and clever and well-educated and God-fearing. Like, you know, he checked a whole bunch of boxes for Clarissa's family, too. Both families were in favor of Chuck and Clarissa getting together, so they did. They got married. Clarissa would end up going through it with Chuck. She is a literal saint, but she was steadfast and loyal and very supportive of everything Chuck did, even when he didn't deserve it which was often, and we'll talk about it. So it's 1826. Chuck and Clarissa go to Philadelphia to open a hardware shop as a kind of like a branch of what Amasa had going on in Naugatuck. By 1830, the couple have three little girls and are thriving in Philly when things take the first turn. This will not be the only turn that Chuck's life takes, but this is the first one. Keep in mind that Charles was always sickly. He had a weak constitution and he'd have regular bouts of dyspepsia or stomach problems that would affect his ability to work or enjoy his family. And now he and his father's shaky business sense would rear its head. They had expanded too much too quickly and offered credit to too many people who couldn't pay it back. Oh, great. Or who wouldn't pay it back. It's, you know, yeah. These men then, Charles and Amasa, Charles and his dad, couldn't therefore pay their own creditors and these creditors were not nice about it he and his father lost most of their business and chuck had to deal with the consequences of being in debt at the time which was debtor's prison it was a horrible place like true the debtors were in the regular jail population but a normal guy like chuck could find himself in with alcoholics cheats swindlers and other and other dangerous men and he was just in there because he was really bad with money and not necessarily Mm. trying to swindle right the cells were crowded, dirty, dangerous, unsanitary. Kind well, why of why like, they call it debtor's prison if they didn't make other, you if they make you stay with everybody else? Well, because those alcoholics, cheats, swindler, swindlers, and other dangerous men were oh, also were debtors. also debtors. Yes, but they also had those other issues. Whereas Chuck just Chuck was just <laughs> spending money because he liked to and not Got getting it. credit from or not not collecting on the debts that were owed to him. Right, and the cells that he was in were like crowded and dirty and dangerous and unsanitary and places of starvation and suffering so it was horrible yeah so now at 34 years of age chuck has gone from prosperous to a debtor in debtor's prison so his family is struggling clarissa had given birth to another girl but she died the little or the baby the the little girl the baby yeah uh they had another son so they had three girls she had gave birth to another baby girl that died they had a son, but then their three-year-old daughter died. Oh. And while 34 is a bit young for a midlife crisis, Chuck was having one and he needed a new line of work. And I don't blame him for that at all. He decided on inventing. His dad was an inventor. He liked the process. So he was going to invent his way out of poverty. Hooray! Just kidding. This was a terrible idea. He held yeah. a few patents for random inventions but nothing was really clicking it's 1834 and chuck is in new york and he sees this rubber life preserver in a store he noticed that this that the inflation valve isn't very good and he thinks oh i can invent a better one so he does and he takes it to the shop owner and tries to sell him the new valve but the shop owner's like yeah that's cool but we can't even deal with the valves because the rubber industry is actually kind of in trouble because rubber is trash 
because at the time, rubber melted in the summer and turned brittle and cracked in the winter. So the shopkeeper basically told Chuck that, like, he's like, dude, if you could figure out how to keep rubber from doing that, that's where the money is. And Chuck's <laughs> like, I'm in. So off he goes. Charles dedicated his life from this point on to dealing with rubber. His wife is an absolute saint because he did all of his early disgusting experiments in her kitchen on her stove. And I'm sure Brendan will tell you more about that. It was gross. The family didn't really have the funds to allow Chuck to be an inventor, though. He needed stuff for his experiments, but he wasn't bringing in any money. So he just pawned their stuff to get the funds he needed. Cool. Yeah. He moved the family back to New Haven, but he didn't exactly find a nice house there. Like, instead of living on the west side of town, where his bougie ancestors would have lived, they ended up on the east side of town in a little neighborhood that someone had tried to name Mount Pleasant, but it actually became known as Sodom Hill thanks to all the brothels in the area. Mm. It's, yeah, it's not great. Uh, their house was named Sodom House, which is also awful. Remember how right. we talked about the, I don't remember if it was in a mini episode or if it was in, no, I think it was in our brawl episode. Oh yeah, a couple um, episodes ago. Naming yeah, houses, yeah. And about naming houses. This mm -hmm. one, this isn't a great name for a house. Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. thumbs down. By this time, he and Clarissa have had six children and three have died. So yeah. To pursue his experiments with rubber, he left the family in Connecticut and headed to New York, where his old mentor, William DeForest, shows up and says, bro, you look terrible, like horribly sick. You're living in a slum, and the fumes from the rubber are probably killing you. Please give this up and go back to your family. Chuck decided not to do that and keep working with his noxious chemicals in small spaces, which went poorly on more than one occasion. In 1837, he left the family at a horrible cottage on Staten Island with 50 cents for expenses and headed to Boston to do more rubber experiments. Eventually, he was able to bring his wife and his kids up there, so they settled in around 1838. All this time, Chuck is experimenting and inventing, but he wasn't actually producing anything. He'd do a project and then abandon it for something else. He didn't seem to be able to settle on any one thing, and he was costing the people backing him money with nothing to show for it. Like, people made fun of him and his family because he was so ridiculous sometimes, which is sad. He hopped around from company to company, investor to investor, trying to perfect this process with rubber. I'm skipping all of that because it's for Brenda to talk about. Eventually, he does figure out this thing with rubber and gets a patent. There's some drama there too, but again, Brenda gets to discuss that. I'm going to fast forward to 1851. Queen Victoria of England was doing this thing called the Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations, which was also known as the Great Exhibition, which is a more reasonable name, I think. There were 17,000 exhibitors from all over the world, all housed in the Crystal Palace, which was built for the occasion. It's a very famous building. The point was to showcase various forms of industrial works in aesthetic ways, not so much money-making ways. Luckily for Chuck, because he was terrible at making money, all of his stuff was aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> so he set up a three-room display entirely made of rubber, although he probably wasn't doing a lot of the setup. He was plagued by gout at this point, so he spent a lot of time hobbling around and even ended up bedridden from time to time. But the walls, desks, portraits, maps, curtains, everything, everything was rubber. What? No, I'm not going to ask why. Of course, I know why. Because it's why. Chuck. Because okay. it's Chuck. 
It was okay. such a fantastical exhibit that people flocked to it. It also cost, at the time, $30,000. Hmm, not a great decision. No, and Chuck borrowed that money from William DeForest, his brother-in-law, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. Chuck never had any money. Now, cool. Chuck did get a medal for his exhibit, but that medal didn't really translate into any kind of income or business deals or anything, so that was mm. kind of tough. Something else that was tough was of a more personal nature. While living in London to be near his exhibit of the Crystal Palace, sickness came to the Goodyear house, but not to Chuck. Despite how sickly Chuck was at all times, Clarissa died of some kind of 1800s illness in May of 1853, leaving a sickly Chuck alone. And I know that Chuck is the badass of our story today, but honestly, Clarissa is one too. Uh, P.W. Barker, the author of Charles Goodyear, a biography, which was one of my sources, described her perfectly, quote, As Mrs. Charles Goodyear, Clarissa was to know poverty, debt, hunger, ridicule, death, with only a few and all too short intervals of peace and creature comforts. She would become the mother of nine children, four of whom she would assist in burying, and she would die in a foreign land far from friends when her husband was ill and played with a thousand cares. If Charles Goodyear is the hero in the drama of Rubber, Clarissa is undoubtedly its heroine. End quote. Which I gotta agree with that. Because remember, while he's doing all this ridiculous stuff, he's hauling around Clarissa and she's hauling around all the kids. Not all the kids because four of the nine died. It's terrible. And so she died in, wait, she died in London or mm -hmm. England? Yep. Oh. 18, in 1853. Ah, oh, okay. So Chuck was understandably devastated by her death since she had put up with him and all his nonsense for almost 30 years at that point. He was not a man accustomed to being alone and like taking care of himself. So it's no surprise that just one year later, Chuck married his second wife. He mm. actually had three children with her, but only one survived past infancy. And I didn't love that it was only a year, but also I don't think he married her because he loved her. I think he was like, hey, I've got these five kids. How do you feel about raising them? Cool, 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 cool. I'm kind of famous in the United States. How old was she? How old was he? It was 53. So he was 53. And she was very much not 53. She was quite a bit younger. She wasn't a child, so we don't have anything like totally icky, but there was definitely an age gap, but it was a different time. What? Okay, well, why would anyone marry him? He had nothing. He had charisma. I don't, I don't. Charisma, I don't zero women, dollars, and five motherless children. I don't think women back then would have been like, you know what's going to put bread on the table? Charisma. I don't think they would have either, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I just want to know how he ended up getting a wife that fast. Anyway, go on. I don't know. Well, the same year that Chuck remarried, he moved his family to Paris. This is like 1853, 1854. He moved to Paris because he wanted to be involved in a Paris exhibition that was similar to the one in London because England and France always have this, anything you can do, I can do better. But money troubles followed him here to Paris and he was arrested for, once again, being in serious debt. So he ended up in the debtor's prison outside of Paris. And his new wife had to translate for him since he didn't really speak French. Wait, so did he pick up his wife in London or England? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I guess she was that desperate. Guys, I can't get over this. I can't wrap my head around this. So, this somebody. I, I guess he would have had to meet him to understand. I don't know. Maybe she just really liked his rubber rooms exhibition thing. I don't know if, I mean, if they were that impressive, then sure. I don't know. I didn't see it. Okay. I mean, I saw some like pictures, quote unquote pictures, but you know. Interesting. 
Well, some royalties came through a few days after he got to debtor's prison and he paid his debt and was released. The current ruler of France at the time, who I'll mention in a minute, was impressed with Chuck's display and awarded him a medal, much like the one from England. Now, Did it Chuck come with was money. No, Chuck was actually oh. awarded the medal while he was locked up, and so his son Charles Jr., who I get a very long-suffering vibe from, mm. brought it to him. Cool. Speaking of long-suffering, Chuck's health was on a steady decline now. It was always it had always been poor, but now it was just getting worse and worse. He had gout, which was bad enough, but then he overworked himself a lot too. So one morning while in Paris, he woke up in terrible pain, but he kind of just shrugged it off and worked a full day. By the evening, though, he was in such pain that he couldn't speak and he couldn't even get out of bed the next day. Couldn't for, speak. Yeah, he was in so much pain, he could not talk, couldn't get out of bed the next day, and he was bedridden for a week. His doctor prescribed a poultice with linseed oil sprinkled with laudanum, two other unnamed medicines, warm baths, Bordeaux wine with dinner, no milk whatsoever, and some kind of tonic medicine. Uh, apparently that medical regimen worked well enough that Chuck could go back to work after the week was up. Mm. But instead of easing himself back into it, Chuck can't stop, won't stop. Mm. He didn't slow down at all. And so he was confined to his bed almost as much as he was up and about now between gout and various bouts of digestive problems. He even had a cough once where he would cough off blood. Uh, so that scared his wife to death. And the doctor put Chuck on another strict diet and told him he couldn't talk for 24 hours, which apparently made him fit as a fiddle again. Well, I mean, <laughs> as fit as Chuck was ever going to be, which was actually not very fit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But as I said, Chuck's exhibit in Paris was a success. So much so that he became rather chummy Remember I told you I was going to tell you who the ruler of France was at this time? Mm -hmm. Well, it was Napoleon III who was emperor of France. <laughs> Chuck was pretty famous by this time, not just because of his court cases and all that, which Brenda will tell you about, but also the fact that his rubber goods were amazing. Uh, but he still had poor health and was constantly fighting off creditors thanks to his complete lack of business sense. In 1855, when he went back to England, he landed in debtor's prison again. Right. This would be the last time, but not because Chuck got himself together in any way. Did he die in prison? No. When he got out, he resumed his experiments, and his son Charles Jr. was his assistant. Chuck mm -hmm. and wife number two moved to Bath in 1857, which was common when you were a sickly person. That's where you went when you were mm -hmm. sick. Uh, the baths had healing properties and all that. But they only stayed there for a year. In 1858, the Goodyears moved back to America, and in 1859, settled down in Washington, D.C., Chuck was now bedridden most of the time. He got news in the spring of 1860 that one of his daughters was deathly ill in New Haven, and he made the very questionable decision to go see her. Now, his doc went with him, which was fine, but when Chuck arrived in New York before continuing to Connecticut, his son-in-law had gone there and told him that, that you know, your, Chuck, your daughter, has died. Oh. So of the 12 children Chuck had fathered, Nine with Clarissa, three with the new wife. Seven have now died before Chuck. Yeesh, that's awful. Yeah, well, the grief from this latest death would take what little strength he had left. Oh. He went to a hotel on Fifth Avenue and sent for his friend, William DeForest. William helped Chuck get his affairs in order and like summoned his wife and the rest of the family. Now, Chuck held on for the entire month of June, but on July 1st, 1860, he died. And his last words were absolution, for the people who had stolen from him. Put that in your satchel because that's Brenna's stuff, okay? Now, the New York Times said that Chuck died of gout, 
which isn't entirely accurate, but his cause of death was probably related to his issues with gout, as well as the dyspepsia, the chemicals he exposed himself to in the course of his experiments, and all of that. He was just 59 years old when he died. And he left an absolute legal mess behind. But for that, we're going to take a break, and then I'm going to turn it over to Brenna. Sound good? Mm-hmm. Okay, Brenna, we need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT Ladder. Yeah, we definitely do. It's an MCAT test prep program like no other. MCAT prep can be super expensive, but this is prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really want to keep costs low. The big thing about the program, though, is how good it is with really excellent concept explanations and visual learning, thousands of practice questions with explanations, and full MCAT practice tests. If you've ever looked into the MCAT, you've probably looked around for complete programs that are made by experts. These courses cost thousands of dollars, which make it super impractical for the average person. MCAT Ladder, though, has over 100 full scholarships available now for both self-paced programs you can start anytime, as well as for intensive and boot camp type programs with dates throughout the year. Right. The whole idea behind Proton Guru and the MCAT Ladder is high-quality MCAT prep that's accessible to more people, not just those who can afford thousands of dollars. So go on over to ProtonGuru.com and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT Ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. I managed to mention the rubber experiments, court cases, and a whole bunch of little other random odds and ends that Brenna needs to fill us in on. So, Brenna, fill in the gaps for us. Tell us all about Chuck and his science. All right. So, obviously, I mean, we're talking about rubber. Um, Rubber, as you may or may not know, comes from rubber trees. Well, I mean, like, they have a scientific name, but I didn't write it down because mm, whatever. Everyone calls them rubber trees. Also, I was just salty about doing the science, I think. So, you know. It's literally your job. There is nothing the scheduler or the editor can do about that. I mean, this one was a tough one. Okay. Rubber is a natural polymer. Again, I do love polymers, but the polymer is made up of mostly isoprene units. Isoprene's IUPAC name is 2-methyl-1,3-butadiene. And if you're a former student of mine, you better be able to draw that. But if you're not, you know, just like Google it. Okay. Anyway, it's not really important other than it's a hydrocarbon that gets polymerized. Um, There are some other organic compounds that get mixed in there, but it's mostly isoprene. And you've probably heard isoprene too, but hydrocarbons are notoriously hydrophobic. They're nonpolar. Um, and so if you know anything about tires, for example, like, you know, you can drive your car in the rain. So that's good. Yeah, that is good. Um, but not um, too so, much rain because then you'll hydroplane and that's well, yeah. So, so the chemical structure that makes up what we call rubber is actually like important to its properties, but Mm-hmm. Fun fact, dandelions and goldenrods also produce latex. So latex is like the liquid form of rubber. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Thomas Edison planted thousands of acres of goldenrod to get access to a cheap, large supply of latex slash rubber to use at his company. But it turns out the quality of the latex isn't that great. And it's pretty labor intensive to get an amount worth it. I hope that he literally sneezed himself into a coma from doing <laughs> that. Goldenrod I mean, is the worst. Oh, wait, no, Thomas. Ed- it was Thomas Edison's son that had that you know, woman troubles, wear this shock belt or whatever. Remember yeah. That? Yeah. Yeah. That was oh. a Thomas Edison. Rubber is harvested in what to me appears to be like what they do to get maple syrup. 
like they tap oh. the trees, collect yeah. latex. Latex is just all the rubber particles suspended in water. Then that latex would get processed into rubber, the hard solid stuff. Okay. So it gets collected um, that way. So today, Thailand, Malaysia, and Indonesia are actually the leading producers of rubber, according to the internet. Okay. Though it also grows in South America. You may hear it referred to as India rubber or Amazonian rubber. Mm -hmm. So seeds and seedlings from South America were actually exported to places like Indian, Malaysia, Sri Lanka, etc., where, of course, they did extremely well. Yeah. So it started in, I mean, it was native to South America. It's not actually native to India and Malaysia and all that. I don't but think I knew it. that. I don't yeah, think I, don't I knew think it I did either. That's interesting. Yeah. But you know who is credited? You're going to love this. With introducing rubber samples in Paris to the Academy of Sciences or the Academy of Science. Oh my gosh. Is it one of the guys from the French expedition that we talked about? Charles Marie de la Condamine. Oh yeah. my gosh, our dude Chuck. The Is he Chuck. the one that had the mistresses that he, the mistress they spent a bunch of money on, like the expedition money, or is that somebody else? I didn't know somebody else. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Isn't that wild? That's awesome. Yeah. Like I saw that name. I was like, I know that guy. I know that guy. So natural rubber is what is called an elastomer, which means it's stretchy, but it's also a thermoplastic. So thermoplastics are polymers that can be molded at higher temperatures, but then set at cooler temperatures. Okay. And there are, of course, benefits to something that is a stretchy thermoplastic, right? Yeah. You heat something up, you shape it how you want, you let it cool down, and you're good to go. But again, uh, if it's your car tire, when you drive your car, they get hot. Because mm -hmm. friction generated from rolling on the road, right? right? So if you have natural rubber and it gets hot, well, it's not going to hold its shape. Right? Yeah, so just that's like the melty, great. you know, inner tubes or not inner tubes. What are they? What were they? Life preservers yeah. or whatever. So same thing, you know, they're going to get melty, and yeah, when they're hot, right? Not great. All right, so rubber itself is actually a really lengthy topic, and so I could just talk broadly about rubber for forever because there's a lot more to it than I realized, but we're going to get narrowed in on Chuck's contributions to, you know, science. So okay. polymer, the polymer science is complex. There's a lot of ways in which you can chemically modify the structure in order to get the properties we need. Latex is the, the goo collected from the rubber trees, but we have latex gloves and latex balloons. And yeah. We have textiles like neoprene, which is, um, well, I talked about isoprene, but neoprene is a type of synthetic rubber that's polymerized mm -hmm. from a different compound. And it just, it would take us forever to like go into all of it. So wow. how does Chuck fit into this picture? All right. So rubber stuff at the time is not great. And when Chuck got involved in rubber, the industry had actually kind of died off because it had such limited usage. Like, I think by the time he was like, oh, I have a way to fix this and went back. They were like, yeah, well, we've moved on. We're not even selling these things anymore. Okay. okay. So it's kind of like a limited, they, they just, it didn't take off the way maybe it could have or did later because we didn't really have a way to make it have the properties we needed it to. Yeah. Okay. But this actually works in Chuck's favor because he's really poor like we said and raw rubber at this point is super cheap because it's not popular right now yeah okay that kind of works for him and he becomes obsessed with unlocking the secrets of rubber with absolutely zero chemical knowledge or training like cool. which you do you chuck but okay 
I read in one book, Goodyear was rubber. He spent his days stirring it, boiling it, kneading it, reeking of it. Which makes me think of Gollum talking about potatoes. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Sam. Sam and Gollum talking. Sam and Gollum. I, yeah, I, you know, I'm, you know I'm picturing that whole scene in my head. Yeah. Okay, good. Which, yeah, his wife was a saint to put up with all of that because it didn't smell good. No. Uh, but even in debtor's prison, he like took his wife's rolling pin and rubber samples and stuff so he could keep working on it in prison. Sir. <laughs> I need that rolling pin for bread to feed our starving children. Seriously. Okay, so in the early days of rubber, people knew, well, there's another guy that discovered this, but I, again, we're not getting into all of it. So people knew that turpentine would dissolve rubber. So if you're trying to coat a fabric or something like that, that would be how you could get it into something you could use. Like you dissolve it in rubber, or excuse me, you dissolve the rubber in turpentine and you could like coat stuff with it. Oh, okay. okay, yeah. So that's Chuck's starting point. So then he basically, from what I can tell, randomly starts mixing other stuff in and seeing what happens. Oh, that's not, okay. (laughs) I'm not a chemist. I'm a mathematician. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if you are not a chemist, you should not just begin mixing chemicals. I mean, other than breathing probably in a whole lot of horrible stuff, it's just, it's not a very efficient way to go about solving a problem. I don't think anything about Chuck was particularly efficient. You know, I mean, he's experimenting, so that's great. But I don't know if he just picks stuff based on cheap costs or availability or what. Like, I don't know. I really don't know. So his first main ingredient was magnesia, which is actually magnesium oxide. They just called it magnesia at the time. Okay. And it showed some promise, so he perfects his recipe of half pound of magnesia to a pound of rubber liquefied with turpentine. And he's so confident that right away, right off the bat, he makes hundreds of pairs of shoes coated with his special formula recipe. Oh, maybe. Chuck, may I have a word with you about <laughs> prototyping? Yeah. And product and testing. Turns out when it got hot enough, those shoes became a hot, sticky mess, which, you know, if you're wondering why this dude was in and out of debtor's prison, I mean, here we are. It's his business sense. Yeah. Also, I read that, quote, Goodyear's conception of rubber was always romantic rather than commercial. In addition to making rubber together, he sought to make it beautiful as well. I know. I mean, sure, we all love a good aesthetic vibe, but I mean, maybe make sure it works first before you make a hundred, hundreds of pairs of shoes. I I mean, like, I don't think rubber core is going to be the next aesthetic vibe coming onto your instagram from influencers i don't know all the 90s stuff is back it's scary um well i mean not the 1790s like i feel like you know fair enough after the first shoe debacle he goes back to experimenting because obviously that perfect recipe is not perfect he tries adding quick lime to the recipe, and now he's definitely got it. And he does actually sell some rubber-coated drapes and some other items from this concoction. Okay. But here's the new problem. When anything acidic touches the quick lime enhanced rubber, it washes off the coating and you back at your tacky rubber mess. Ew. So, not great. No. So then he's like, well, maybe I'll coat it in copper because that would look pretty. You know, because... <laughs> guys okay okay well that was a mess so really i'm shocked so then he's like i'm gonna wash this off with nitric acid which doesn't seem to go well but then he finds that 
mess. I guess he just left it, which I don't know where he's, is he just leaving this around his house? I don't really know. But he finds, supposedly he finds that mess a few days later and the rubber was smooth and hard. He's like, okay, nitric acid is like the key. This is it. I'm, I've got this. Okay. Uh-huh. So then at some point while he's using nitric acid solution, he ends up creating a gas cloud that enveloped him and he breathed that in and that's not super good for you. Um, so that's like six weeks recovering in bed, but then he's like, you know what I need to get back to using nitric acid to treat this. So perfect. In 1837, he finally got a backer slash, you know, cash. So he goes and gets himself a patent for his process that uses nitric acid. Okay. And he actually sent some rubber coated bandages for military use to the president of the United States, Andrew Jackson. Oh, that's nice. Andrew Jackson actually replied, which I thought was kind of cool. But Chuck's in New York at this time, and he gets himself into an old Staten Island rubber factory. So he's cranking out hats, aprons, et cetera, that are rubber-coated. Okay. Okay. latest and greatest formula, for lack of a better... I don't feel like it was a formula, because I feel like it was just like some... I mean, it was probably the same every time, but I just feel like, you know, here's some random stuff we're throwing in. We have no idea why it works, but okay. Yeah. Except, guess what? Eventually, even these products deteriorated deteriorated in heat. And then, to add insult to injury, later in 1837, after he'd finally gotten that investor, there's that big financial panic in the States. Yeah. Big, like, 1830, yeah, it's 1837. So, all that means he is back to being backer less. Yeah. Poor. Um, yeah. Headed for debtor's prison. Yeah, but as Chuck is inclined to do, he just moves on to somewhere else. So now he's at the Roxbury Company in Roxbury, which is like part of Boston. Mm -hmm. And there's a guy named Edwin Chafee there also trying to do stuff with rubber. And he made his own important contributions with machinery and stuff. Like, I'm not going to get into it, but there's some important machinery that he actually designed. But it's good for Chuck because he can experiment with pigments. He can try making bigger, more unified, uniform sheets of rubber, et cetera, thanks to this machinery. Okay. And again, because, you know, he can experiment with pigments and stuff. He wants to make things pretty, right? Right. Um, so instead of making very helpful things, he just leans into his whimsy and makes like cream colored piano covers and stuff. Not like something that's going to completely revitalize the rubber industry. Like how many people need piano, rubber piano covers? I don't that are that are white cream cream colored cream excuse me cream colored it's cream colored okay so i don't know things fall flat in roxbury shocker uh or they're tired of his shenanigans i don't really know chuck moves on to woburn massachusetts i don't know if i'm saying that right but uh and he's at the eagle india rubber company there's a guy at eagle named nathaniel hayward nate sells the biz to chuck but before chuck got there he had started experimenting with sulfur nate had so mm-hmm. he'd been experimenting with sulfur as an additive and probably Chuck could smell it. Like sulfur has a very distinct yeah. smell, right? It's like the rotten egg smell is what mm-hmm. most people would, what, what you smell when you smell rotten egg smell is the sulfur in there. Yes. Okay. Um. So he gets Nate to admit that that's what he'd been experimenting with. Nate would go on, I don't know, at some point he would say that he dreamt that he should add sulfur. Like these men, I can't even, <sighs> like. Okay. I have we ever read about a woman when someone asked her, How did you figure this out? She was like, eh, I can't mean a dream. I don't <laughs> think a woman has ever said that because no, because no one ever asked her how she figured it out. They were always just like, You have a uterus. How did you figure this out? Yeah. So they never even had a chance to make up some ridiculous story. Right. 
Well, so, okay, so we got sulfur. So Chuck takes this idea. He runs with it. He's adding rubber, sulfur, and white lead together. Oh, that's not a problem at all. <laughs> yeah. Other stuff too, but this mix becomes his top candidate. So he's like, okay, yeah, for real this time, this is it. And he convinces the United States Post Office to buy 150 all-weather rubber mailbags, thinking like, okay, these mailmen are out there, the elements, they're going to carry these bags that are coated in rubber and people uh-huh. will know and then I'm, I'm gonna be you know this is it so he how spends- many people's mail got melted <laughs> so he spends well it's 150 okay and he's got this again he's got his like ideal candidate for his mix so he spent right. a bunch of time making what were apparently exquisitely designed like beautiful bags because of course they were because it's chuck and he's all about the aesthetic so he hangs them up Right. He makes them all, hangs them up in his shop or house, or I don't know where they're living at this time. And he goes on vacay for a few weeks. I don't know where he went, to be honest with you. Probably not vacay, but you know, probably had to go retrieve his family from whatever hovel he had left them in. That's probably where he went. (laughs) Yes. He was like, where did I leave them? Oh, yeah. (laughs) yeah, Money. I feel like I didn't. So he comes back. Guess what? The outside of the bags look fine. Uh, But the inside is a gooey mess. The bags have melted off the straps, etc. So he's wasted a lot of time and money and energy on yet another failure. And this leads him to have to sell the Eagle Mill that he's been doing this from. So here at last, we get something positive in Chuck's disastrous career because I don't feel like it was overly successful. And it is his accidental discovery of what we call vulcanization. Quote, few scientific discoveries have occasioned greater speculation, embellishment, and flat-out fabrication than has Charles Goodyear's great discovery in early 1839. Okay, meaning from here, depending on where you read, there's all kinds of stories about how he discovered this process. Okay. Okay, yeah. So I'm going to do my best to stick to whatever facts, like these are things that we know pretty much for sure without getting you know silly about without getting into soothsaying and voodoo and, and, and came came to me in a dream, dream and, and, yeah okay. yeah in february march 1839 chuck accidentally put or maybe spilled rubber mixed with sulfur and white lead on a hot stove so he either accidentally put it on there and didn't realize it was a hot stove or he spilled it okay i'm going sam- spilled but okay yeah probably the sample had turned leathery not immediately like he discovered i think it was like a day or two later he discovered this leathery rubber stuff okay okay so then that's when he realized heat is that missing ingredient in the process and chuck wrote about this in his diary in third person because he always wrote in third person like oh my gosh he's a third person guy no he's not oh quote while on one of the visits above alluded to at the factory at Woburn and at the dwelling place where he stopped whenever he visited the manufactory at Woburn, the inventor made some experiments to ascertain the effect of heat upon the same compound that had decomposed in the mailbags and other articles. He was surprised to find that the specimens being carelessly brought into contact with a hot stove charred like leather. He endeavored to all the attention to this effect as remarkable and unlike any before known since gum elastic always melted when exposed to a high degree of heat, the occurrence did not at the time appear to them to be worthy of notice. It was considered as one of the frequent appeals that he was in the habit of making in behalf of some new experiment. People, okay, if you're going to leave a journal behind, 
because you should a diary especially if you've got tea because of course somebody needs to read it even if it's like you know your great 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 grandkids trust me they want to know the tea they want to know it so much oh my gosh please don't write in third person don't be that guy was annoying to me i like i'm so irritated i can't even tell you but why am i not surprised yeah why am i why i mean you know it's chuck he's artistic i'm curious um chuck is the boy who cried rubber one too many times right yeah like oh this is it hence the title of this episode okay so when he tries to say no like for real for real for real i'm being so for real right now everyone's like "Mm -hmm, yeah okay great thanks good good luck chuck okay which kind of stinks for him but i mean none of us can really blame anyone for being skeptical at this point so Chuck is determined to prove that this is what everyone has been waiting for, for real. He calls the rubber, quote, fireproof gum, but later the term vulcanization would be used instead. Okay. So pretty much if we are using rubber, we are using vulcanized rubber. So let's okay. get into a little bit of the science. Yeah. Um, well, why? so why does this work? Um, nobody really knew until the latter part of the 20th century, truthfully. Oh, really? Didn't even know rubber was a polymer until 1920. Okay. So... The book, one of the books I read, Noble Obsession, does a really good job of explaining the science of how, like, vulcanization works. So I'm just going to quote them, okay? Okay. Because I liked their explanation and their example. Okay. In the rubber macromolecule, a certain percentage of the carbon atoms are unsaturated, meaning they have unfulfilled potential to join with other atoms. They have double bonds, okay? Okay. In the absence of a better offer, they simply form double bonds with other carbon atoms in the same molecule. When sulfur is added at room temperature, the sulfur atoms and carbon atoms sit on their hands like college freshmen at their first mixer. But look what happens when you turn up the heat and, in Goodyear's case, add some white lead as an accelerant. It's like adding salsa music and a keg of beer to the mixer. Oh, man. The wallflower carbons and sulfurs transform into extroverts on the prowl for partners. Since the sulfur atoms can link with carbons in more than one rubber molecule simultaneously, suddenly the rubber macromolecules connect like ladder posts joined by hundreds of sulfur rungs. Oh, man. That is the best. That, like, that that makes me... I read that and I was like, well, I can't explain it any better than that. No, I don't think anybody could. I know. I love it. Yeah, so we call this cross-linking, which I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure we've, I know we've talked about. I think we talked about this with uh, Ruth. Ben-Rita. We did talk about it with right. Ruth when we were doing cotton. Mm-hmm. Wrinkle-free cotton, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So basically you have all these chains of tangly hydrocarbons until you cross-link, which gives them some order and starts holding it together more strongly. And if the mm-hmm. cross-links stay, even when heated or cooled, then the polymer continues to behave as expected. Okay. So despite anything else you want to say about Chuck, he is... Mm, he is probably the first person to figure out that you need the sulfur and heat to make this process complete. But just put a pin in that because I have something very interesting to say at the very end. Of this. Oh, okay. Even though Chuck was certain his fireproof gum was the real deal, unfortunately, it took a lot more experimenting because I'm not going to, and I'm not going to detail because, I mean, this no, is it's, mm-hmm. yeah. But there were a lot of different iterations of an oven to try to get even heating. And- oh, you mean his wife's cook stove didn't work best? Mm, yeah he would actually try now to get local businesses with furnaces and ovens to let him use their equipment after hours to try try stuff even now he's in and out of debtor's prison because you know it's expensive finally he basically designs uh, it's a rotisserie oven okay yeah 
is stick your stuff in there, evenly heat and rotate your rubber objects. You keep the oven at like 270 degrees and you okay. add the sulfur and whatever. And okay, great. Okay. Great, great, great. Yeah. So it's, it's looking good. So let's fast forward to 1842. Chuck has some pretty good rubber overshoes that make their way to a guy named Horace Day, who is the worst. Okay. Horace okay. Day is Horace Day is the, Day. He's the villain. Okay. He's, he's terrible. So Day wants to get Chuck's secrets about rubber so he can also do it as a rubber manufacturer. And one of Chuck's guys sells him out for $50 plus travel expenses to tell Oh, Horace plus travel he, expenses? Yes, he's like, travel. it'll only cost you 50 bucks, but you're paying my gas. Yeah. Come I on. mean, to, but he goes and tells Horace everything he knows. But uh. even a year later, Day is still struggling and he's mad about it. But Chuck knows it was a finicky process, right? I mean, I yeah. didn't go into it, but Chuck had to sit here and really like figure out how to make this process work evenly, smoothly, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess Horace doesn't have the patience for it. So just put Horace in your pocket for a minute. We'll come okay. back. Chuck is still poor, and also he wants the vulcanization process to be absolutely perfect. As a result, he delays in taking out a patent on his process. Bro. Okay. Yeah, both in the U.S. and in Europe. And that causes problems because there's a dude named Thomas Hancock who is literally the king of rubber in the U.K. Mm -hmm. He has made small improvements in his rubber oven rubber over the years, but nothing like Chuck's process. So mm -hmm. Chuck needs money and he sends an agent out with samples of the rubber to the uk to see if he can drum up interest investors money something for his rubber okay. and he's asking fifty thousand pounds to buy the, the process all the secrets wow so our boy tommy gets some of those samples not by nefarious mean nefarious means or anything like he was involved with the macintosh company mm -hmm. who was using rubber in their big raincoats to make yeah his like yeah. that that is the origin of the raincoat that we know as the Macintosh. Yeah. I would love to have more time to talk about Hancock and Macintosh because it was a very interesting story. It was too, interesting. But... I almost, yeah. because there was, there were, there were elements of a brawl that we could maybe have gone. I not like it was a brawl, but yeah, I, I mean, like, like the Hancock and just, uh, Hancock and the development of the Macintosh and stuff was kind of cool, but Tommy works to figure out what chuck has been doing so he has right he gets the samples so mm -hmm. i think you know he's basically trying to like reverse engineer right mm -hmm, yeah like how did how'd you get this so he works out that sulfur is involved he has an idea of the process he applies for a provisional european patent which gives him six months to apply for the full patent otherwise the patent is canceled that is in november 1843 chuck okay. meanwhile applies to the british patent office in january 1844 Ooh. Sure enough, six months later, Tommy's figured out the vulcanization process and he gets the full patent in June 1844. Oh, but it was Chuck's thing. I know. It was really lucrative, apparently more so than the U.S. one would be. But Chuck does get himself, get his act together, and he gets his patent in the U.S. in June of 1844 as well. Okay. I think when he applied to the British Patent Office in January 1844, I think he applied at the U.S. Patent Office. So he does get the U.S. patent because nobody else had done it there. Okay. 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 Chuck should have probably made like bazillions of dollars, but he, he didn't. Should be because... a bazillionaire. You would think that with a guy like a name like Charles Goodyear, you would be right. the richest of the rich. Right. But he didn't because he spreads himself too thin, probably still trying to make, I don't know, whimsical rubber items instead of focused on being really good at a small number of products. But 
Anyway, uh, DeForest, who Maggie mentioned earlier, started Naugatuck India Rubber Company mm-hmm. and paid a flat fee of 50K to Chuck for unlimited patent rights, oh. which, I mean, I kind of feel like his, his brother-in-law might have screwed him a little bit, but okay. Well, he, Chuck had borrowed $30,000 from I him. I know, but still only like it's a flat fee of like, here, I get unlimited rights to all the things now for $50,000. I don't know. Just, mm. and Chuck being not a businessman was like, okay, yeah. That sounds great. Um, no, Chuck get a lawyer. Gonna be, well, because Chuck was going to be allowed to keep experimenting. Oh, that's all Chuck cared about. Yeah. So he's like, okay, yeah. Um, okay, but his legal woes aren't over. So Horace. Mm-hmm. remember Horace who bribed an employee of Chuck's to spill the beans about yes can I take him out of my pocket now he's been in there causing mm-hmm. problems okay he's literally the worst okay so in 1843 mm-hmm. by 1843 he had fallen in love this is not necessarily related to Chuck but just this guy he had fallen in love with his cousin mm-hmm. Catherine Day and he decided to abandon his five-year-old son his wife and his newborn daughter on the literal day of her birth. Like Mrs. Day is there pushing out a baby. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to go. Bye. I'm sputtering over here. I don't even know what to say about this goblin. He's the worst. I know. Um, Okay. Sorry in advance, mom, but thank goodness his wife divorced his dusty ass and he had to pay alimony and child support while he goes ahead and marries his cousin. Good. He's gross. He's gross. Yeah. He so is this dusty. goblin. Ugh. Yeah, dusty. So this goblin has already tried to get an illicit illicit patent. And now he's after something else Chuck created, which is shirred cloth. Okay. Mm, yeah. This is a way they manufactured cloth with the rubber so there was stretch. I'm not getting into it, okay? But That's Chuck fine. sold the patent to a, a different guy for $15,000, okay? Literally right after that, Horace starts putting out shirred goods that are crap quality, but they're cheaper. Mm. Oh. So the guy who bought the rights from Chuck goes back and asks, can we like undo this deal? Because I'm making $0 because somebody's putting out crappy product but it's a lot cheaper than mine and so like i'm making zero dollars from this fifteen thousand i paid you for which i mean chuck's a good dude so he agrees i mean i like that he did it which morally it, is probably the right thing to do yeah, but from a business good, perspective also, like get a lawyer seriously. that's what lawyers help you with right okay so chuck is filing lawsuits in 1844 and 1845 against horace horace just countersues that goodyear is a fraud and this does go on for like 20 years off and on. Um, this litigious goblin who <laughs> left his wife on the day of their daughter's birth is like, mm-hmm. no, you know mm-hmm. what? You're a liar. No, you are. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. This, yeah. Yeah. This guy's literally awful. So like 20 years, which when did we say... When did Goodyear die? I think I think this is what you alluded to. Like it goes on after his death. Like I think this, this still is, yeah. like, kind of this is the core case because it drags out all forever. For yeah, decades, literally. Our buddy Nate. Do you remember Nate? I do remember the Nate. Guy. Okay, he gets on Horace's side because he's all mad that he's not getting all the benefits of this okay. because he admitted like, oh yeah, I sold I sold the company and told you that I was using sulfur, but now I'm mad. So then he was like, no, all this is my idea. If you need any info, like, here are my digits, hit me up. Oh, my gosh. Okay. 
Meanwhile, Tommy Hancock over in England is still being shady. So he got the British patent for the vulcanization process, but he did some shady deals with American rubber imports and he ticked off certain industries because he was acting like he invented the process. I, I mean, he tries to claim credit for it. He was tied up in legal nonsense for a while with his drama. Like it's, I just started not caring because it just got too litigious. If you're, if you like, law i don't know i don't even know if mom who was going to be a lawyer would want to have to read all of that because it was just it is dumb these people are dumb. Well, and it's anyway. civil law too yeah i just yeah Ugh. Ugh. anyway none of that has to do with the actual science of vulcanization of rubber so again i'm just not going to go any further into the weeds uh i mean i'll probably say a little bit more in his legacy but to go back to the science i told you like was he the first person to figure out vulcanization did Chuck actually rediscover the process of fortifying rubber? Oh, Hear me out. Okay. I read an article called Prehistoric Polymers, Rubber Processing in Ancient Meso- Mesoamerica. Mesoamerica? Mesoamerica. Okay. As early as 1600 BC, it appears, it's from a paper, I'll cite it, and you know, it'll be in the references, but it appears there is evidence that the Mesoamerican people were processing rubber that they obtained from the the rubber tree, the Castilla Elastica tree. Okay. Mm-hmm. There are Spanish reports that in order to make the rubber usable, the people mix latex with juice from a morning glory vine. Once they mixed these together, the rubber was moldable and they would make balls, figurines, other items. Not to mention they use the liquid latex for medicines and paints, et cetera. Like mm-hmm. um, there's like a very early game that they think they played where they had they had a rubber ball. It was like kind of like soccer and basketball, I think, or something. I don't know. Some oh, kind okay. of early Mesoamerican, Mesoamerican game. Anyway, this is a very technical paper and I don't want to delve into it too much. And I'm not going to pretend I did not read every word of it. Okay. But liquid from the morning glory vine right they mix that in yeah it has organic sulfonyl chloride and sulfonic acid species present in it which means that they were also exploiting the cross-linking capabilities of the polymers using that liquid they didn't know it but they were using sulfur based compounds to mix in their rubber to make their rubber usable wow i think he rediscovered it so the paper actually recreated rubber using these species I'm talking about and did a ton of chemical and mechanical analysis on the yeah. rubber in order to figure out why these ancient Mesoamericans were able to use the rubber in a meaningful way. And so yeah. they they looked into it, but I'm, I'm way oversimplifying it. Okay. It's a, again, it's a pretty in-depth article, but bottom line is Chuck might've actually rediscovered this process. Oh my gosh, that's wild. But like, how did it get lost for that long? Like, y'all, these people down in Mesoamerica were like, y'all, like we figured this out literally thousands of years ago. I don't... To be fair, the Spanish were more interested in gold than rubber. And so I feel like their priorities were more just like, I mean, also, where's the gold? And they were like, yeah, but we vulcanized this. Up, 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 up. (laughs) Gold, please. And thank you. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. I well, just... it took the time to write it down. 
Like well, there were Spanish reports that they like did this. So it was probably a monk that wrote it down. And monks were a little bit better about documenting literally anything that happened during those explorations. The conquistadors were just out for gold. Okay. Fair enough. But yeah, so that's Chuck, the reinventor of rubber processing. Yeah. But like thanks for the tires. Yeah, so how do we, are you going to talk about how we get to the tires? Because. Uh, No, but I think we need to talk about his legacy. I think we need to talk about his legacy as well. So let's take a break and then we'll do that. So now we have this whole tire company, rubber tire company, named after a guy who I was going to say invented the process for dealing with rubber, but it sounds like he stumbled into a process for making rubber usable possibly hundreds of years after Mesoamericans did. So I don't know. So, but is that his whole legacy or is there more to it? Well, I mean, modern rubber vulcanization was crucial, I think, to the world's advancement, honestly. I mean, I don't probably think we realize how much of what we use is rubber or some, you know, rubber rubber adjacent product. Yeah. Yeah. And despite the, you know, I know there's a lot of myths about how Chuck discovered the process. I think he deserves credit. I mean, he collected information from his experiments and the work of others. And I mean, he did have the patience to endure trial after trial, after trial, after trial, after trial, after trial of rubber failures to figure out how to make it work. So I like his persistence. Um, despite the nonsense with Horace, despite Horace trying to get Congress to revoke Chuck's patent because it was, quote, a vile calumny. Okay. And, quote, a fraud and a swindle. Despite okay. even Tommy Hancock's attempt to claim to be the inventor, we all recognize him, Chuck, today as the inventor, whether accidental or not. But we all just kind of recognize, like, mm-hmm. again, we associate Charles Goodyear with rubber and whatever. Yeah. I've read that Chuck takes a lot of flack because he was not so business savvy because he didn't have scientific training and some are like, oh, he just looked into it. It's not like he's a genius, but look like Alexander Fleming wasn't trying to develop an antibiotic that would literally save millions, billions of lives. Like he was a scientist in training, but it was still an accident. So you You can make the case that most discoveries are accidental because that's, that's part, that's the scientific process. I'm teaching my son, the scientific method right now. It starts with an observation. You make a hypothesis and then you start testing it. You don't go into it knowing what's going to come out of it ever. And if you do, you're doing science wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's, depending on what you read, like maybe he gets grief or takes, you know, takes flack for it, but Yeah. I think it stinks he had to deal with all the petty BS from people around him and the competitors in the field. Mm -hmm. Uh, He probably needed to have like a real lawyer and someone with real business and legal sense to help him because that would have probably solved a lot of problems. Yeah. Get a patent attorney, Um, dude. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I thought it was really interesting to learn about. I didn't really, I actually didn't really stop to think about or I guess I never put it together that when he was inventing this process, we didn't have cars. Like, I mean, yeah. of course, Goodyear tires didn't need to be a thing when he was doing it because we didn't have cars. I mean, right. we had wagons and stuff, but they didn't use rubber tires. They had, they yeah. were wooden, you know? Well, so... and in fact, later, 
when Ford, Henry Ford was doing the car thing, he started his own town in South America to deal with rubber so he would have ready access so he could mm -hmm. do the vulcanization process and get rubber for his tires. Mm -hmm. That came way after right. Chuck. Right. Which I just, I think I never really stopped. I know the name Charles Goodyear, but I don't think I knew what time period he existed in. And I don't think I ever really, really well, knew. Because it feels like he should have been like, you know, what would be better than whatever you're using on those cars over here. Yeah. I got this tire. Let right. me show it to you. Yeah, no, yeah, it was yeah. none of that. He yeah. was making paperweights and curtains and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Piano covers. Great. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Interesting. He's an interesting dude. He is. Yeah, because the in, it was in it was 1898 before the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company was founded. And okay. and it not even no one in the Goodyear family was even adjacent to that. It was oh, Frank okay. Cyberling, who was the guy who Did founded. Did they have to pay any royalties or anything for using the name? I don't know. I, I didn't okay. get into it. If anybody else in the family has the same kind of business sense as Chuck, probably not. So, I mean, yeah, but they did name it in honor of him, which I, uh, okay. which again, I think okay. is deserved. I think is yeah. deserved. As yeah. you have said, I agree with you on that. And, but there were other people in his family who did do other things like his son who, okay. So Charles Goodyear Jr. Long suffering Charles Goodyear Jr had to kind of untangle all the money craziness after Chuck's mm -hmm. death because after he died, everyone thought that the family was provided for. They mm -hmm. were not because his oh. estate went to settle a whole bunch of debts, but oh. Chuck Jr. dealt with a whole bunch of patent and royalties issues and like untangled the whole legal mess. He was around when the thing with Horace Day got settled and all that, um, but he was also an inventor. And there's hmm. this thing in shoemaking called the Goodyear Welt. Oh. Uh, which I don't know, didn't know what that is. Um, Charles Jr. invented it. The Welt is a strip of rubber, of course, that runs along the outside of a shoe. And it like it probably contributes to like waterproofing and durability and all that kind of, you know, things that rubber does. But yeah. anyway, it's the Goodyear Welt and it was Charles Jr.'s invention. So oh. there's that too. Well, good for him. Yeah. Uh, but just in general, I do think that Chuck was an interesting guy. And he, I I don't think that we should, like you said, asterisk his contribution to science just because yeah. he didn't mean to, because yeah. most people don't mean to invent sure. something. I mean, when you set out to invent a thing, sometimes you get something else. I mean, the whole reason we have post-it notes is because someone wanted the strongest glue ever. Right. And now we have something that you can't even call glue. But it's right. the it's one of I could not function in my daily life without post-it notes. So, you know, I'm I'm willing to say, okay, that's fine. Yeah. I do love a good post-it note. I do. So yeah, well, because that's how I keep track of my sources sometimes, which is is the honest truth. So do you want to talk about them? Sure. Um, I mainly just read Noble Obsession by Charles Slack. I read that book too. Yeah, I got most of my that really good quote about explaining how the yeah. vulcanization process uh, works came from that. Nice. I also read Redefining Vulcanization, Charles Goodyear, Patents and Industrial Control, 1834 to 1865 by Kai Geese Richardson. And then I also have my prehistoric polymers, rubber processing in ancient Mesoamerica, which was in science actually in 1999. Oh, okay. With some scientists that I'm not going to butcher their last names, but I will, the reference librarian person will endeavor to put them up on social media. 
Excellent. Yeah, so besides her noble obsession, I had India Rubber Man by Ralph F. Wolf. Mm. And that wasn't just about Charles Goodyear, although he was the most prominent person in it, but it also talked about like the whole fascinating and intense history of rubber in the world. Because mm-hmm. it's it is one of the most interesting substances in terms yeah. of how it affected geopolitical mm, social yeah. like it sure. like it economic it was everything it was a very yeah. interesting book um then i read oh charles goodyear a biography by pw barker that i mentioned oh yeah it was good and then i did go to the goodyear corporate you know website oh, and uh-huh. check out their info on um the charles goodyear story and he has a very i, th- I think I don't think um, inappropriately flattering. I think it's a very, you know, it's a nice memory of him, a good way to memorialize him on their website and why he's, why mm-hmm. the company is named for him and all of that. So, okay. but yeah, those, uh, those are my sources. Cool. This was one who was easy to find information on. Charles Goodyear is everywhere. But not an overwhelming amount. I don't know. No, I it didn't feel like it was a fire hose. I felt like I could really handle the information that I was getting yeah. this time, except for some of the court case stuff. But that's just because I yeah. don't I, I don't have any knowledge about legal anything for any right. reason. So, ditto. All right. So you're ready to tease next week? Sure. You know, I have to say, I really do love my GPS. I'd be lost without it. Really? And our BA next week may just have played a very important role in the fact that I'm now super way too dependent on a device to give me directions. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. definitely her fault. Like I go places that I've driven five, six, seven, eight, nine, more more times, and I still put my GPS on. Okay, but I do it because sometimes there's that turn that you're like, is it this one or the next one? And then sometimes okay, my excuse like, normally, what's the traffic? What's the traffic sit? My excuse normally is that there's literally, for most of the places I want to go, 16 different ways you can go. And depending on the day and the traffic and whatever, you yeah. might want to take one route over another. Yeah. So I'm just going to say that I use it because I'm trying to be the most efficient on time with traffic. I, the hill I will die on all the time is the most efficient route always. Actually. Okay. So actually tonight, my husband and I were both driving home separately. He left before me from where we were driving home from. Mm -hmm. And I put it into my GPS, Mm -hmm. my phone and like was looking at the routes. I'm like, okay, I'm going to pick this one. And then like part of the way there, I was like, oh, this is like one minute shorter. I was like, oh, I'll just click that. I mean, it's one minute, but I was like, okay, fine. I'll turn here instead of here, whatever. I beat my husband home. He left before me and I beat him home. And I was like, how did I beat you home? And so we were comparing ways we went. And he was like, oh, I didn't, you know, put in my phone. I just went the way that I got, you know, used to get here. And I was like, mm, well, well, we, something similar. I mean, it was like two minutes, but still he left before me. So I feel like I somehow made up five minutes or so of time Maybe. on him. And that could happen. So my husband and I figured the same thing out because we drove, we were driving from, the college that we went to to his parents house because we had gone there for the weekend and they were watching our kids and like the drive from his growing up home to college is one that he made all the time like it was he was always mm-hmm. back and forth right mm-hmm. we put it he no he knows how to get there from school right. but he actually put it in the gps so we shaved off like 
47 minutes from the time it normally would take because there is a better way that just nobody knew because they had never GPSed it because we're 150 years old and we didn't have, I mean, we did have GPS when we were in college, but it wasn't the same kind of fact of life that it is now. Right. So, so yes, our lady next week contributed majorly, majorly to it. The saving us minutes and beating our husband. Yeah. On their route love that yeah so yes yeah, so that'll be next week but uh that's all i've got for this week do you have anything else nope all right then until next time live dangerously do science